Good morning to you too. And uh, it's good to be with you. I, uh, I hate that I missed being with you last week. I, um, I didn't feel good. And um, I'm glad that Cade, thank you for preaching for them. You didn't preach for me. You preached for them. He preached for you and brought the word that you needed to hear. Uh, but I'm glad to be back, and uh, I'm doing okay. Somebody said, how are your shingles? And I said, uh, well, I've, I upgraded to the architectural over the three-tab, and they're keeping the house dry. And the rash on my side's doing better, too. Anyway, that's all I really want to say about that. We've, uh, we've been getting into, that was a little roofer joke there for you, you know. It's, uh, is that a roofer joke or a medical joke? Some of you are thinking, was that even a joke? And uh, <laughs> this is the seventh part of an eight-part series um, on hope for healing. And we've got a class that's studying the book by John Baker. And I wanted you to understand this. Um, the focus of all of this and all of these steps and all of these choices is change. The focus is change. The, the goal is change. And, and not just changing whatever we want, but changing to be more like the image of Christ. To be more like the person who is our Lord, Jesus Christ. And we're learning uh, that, that doing things God's way will bring us more satisfaction and joy than our own way. And so... Um, just to recap, because you need to see how these flow into each, each other. The six choices that have taken us thus far are choices that we make, and we grow through each one of these choices. We admit that we are not God. We trust that God cares for us. We commit our life to Christ. We confess our faults. We submit to the changes that God wants to make in our lives. And everything at that point has been sort of us and God. And then it starts to flow outward. Now we offer forgiveness. Why? Because God has forgiven us. We make amends. We've made amends with God. Now we make amends with others. Which now takes us to this seventh choice that, that follows on this. And really, the, it, it's, it's a choice to keep it going. So in healing choice number seven, we choose to reserve a daily time with God for Bible reading, self-examination, and prayer in order to know God and to know His will for my life and to gain the power to follow His will. you got to have something to keep the growth and keep the momentum going. You can, you can win a single game, but you also have to focus on winning the season. You can put your own Razorback joke in there. And uh, the... Uh, what we call it in some circumstances is the long haul, the long game or the long road, the, the, the overall strategy. Sometimes, and again, this is where I think we get so routined and so caught up in procedure that sometimes we, we may see our Christian life as, as nothing more than not skipping a Sunday. I just want to get to the next Sunday. And when I get to that next Sunday, God will erase all the bad stuff I did 
because he'll forgive me of all the bad stuff I did, and then maybe I can do more good stuff next week. But if not, I'll come back to the next Sunday, and we'll start the process all over again. That is a short view and not a view for the long haul. And even with all of these six choices, we can, we can get so um, uh, nearsighted that we don't have the long-range vision to see what is really the goal here, which is the kind of change that helps us to do three things, and it's wrapped up in that choice, that we're going to know God, and when we know God, we're going to know His will. I've got to pause just for a second here. Do, do we really understand what the will of God is? We drop God's will into our conversation and our church thoughts quite often. Well, that's God's will. That's God's will. And sometimes I think what we mean by that is God's preferences. God likes us to worship this way. God likes things this way. God likes this kind of person. God doesn't like that kind of person. God prefers chocolate ice cream, not vanilla ice cream. God likes this sports team. He doesn't like that sports team. And we have all these little things that God doesn't like. Which translation is best? And sometimes we're asking ourselves, which one does God like? And when God becomes that petty of a character to us, that he's constantly upset by things, maybe maybe we don't really know God Maybe we're filtering our own petty desires or the petty desires of others, our our preferences, into God. But when you really get to know God, you know His will. And His will is His plan. It's His heart's desire. It's His dream. God's had this from the beginning. I mean, from the very beginning of creation. You read, I think Paul figured this out during his life. Sometimes we want, to, you know, we, want to, we want to put Paul up on a pedestal. Do not put the Apostle Paul on a pedestal because he worked really hard to get off of a pedestal. <laughs> and, and, and God worked through him to show us, hey, you know, he said, I am who I am, and God has used the one who was once an enemy to the Lord's people is now using him for his purposes. I mean, Paul has all of this language about about how he understands that, that he thought he knew God's will and he thought he knew what pleased God. And then he finds out that, it, that he really didn't know what he thought he knew. But he replaces it with this grand vision of what God has always intended for humanity and for creation and the, for the salvation of, of, of everything that God made. So, so God's got this will. Uh, it's, a, it's a decree. It's a plan. And we've got to come to know what that is, personally and on the large scale. And then we need to have the strength and the energy and the desire and the motivation to lean into that will, to be a part of it, to live it out. Now that's what this seventh choice is all about. And by the way, that's the sort of thing that isn't just going to happen on one Sunday. When I started out preaching, I had this idea that, that um, what you have to do is you have to pack just the right stuff into a sermon so that right then and there in that moment, in the 20, 30, 40 minutes, whatever it is that you're preaching, uh, you're going to change someone's life forever. I'm not going to guarantee you that, and if that's your expectation, well, let's change it. Because the fact of the matter is, sermons and preaching and knowing God's word and knowing God's will is like a healthy diet. You don't eat one meal and then everything's just suddenly better for you. It's a consistent effort in the same direction. 
problem is we're wrapped up in a culture of the quick fix. It's got to be that one sermon, that one worship, that one experience, that one thing. You know, how many times have we been promised, the next 20 minutes will change your life forever. Buy this product. This is going to reverse everything. Yeah, if you don't believe me, if you're saying, I don't know what you're talking about, then here's what I want to ask you to do. I want you to stay up until 3 a.m. today, okay? Just go ahead and stay up until 3 a.m., and then you watch any of the cable television you want, okay? Especially if it's a one-hour-long commercial. They will be selling you something that's going to change your life. And you probably didn't even know that you have the problems that they're going to tell you that they're going to have. But guess what? They've got something that fixes it. And I believe that we have been conditioned to think that there's some pill, some program, some purchase, something that's going to just change everything for us because we want things to be fixed. I've got this disease. What do I need? Fix it. Fix it. Give me a shot. Give me a pill. I don't care. Fix it. I want to move on with my life. I don't feel good. Fix it. I don't like the way things are. Fix it. And we want everything to be fixed. But here's the problem with the quick fix. It rarely works. It rarely works, and in fact, it can make matters worse. Uh, You can can really damage things uh, by trying to get by with the, the quick fix. And worst of all, it's a false god. Um, when we focus on the fix, even if it's something that sounds really good and promising and, and maybe even holy, we're replacing God. And this is the, the, the subtle temptation of the quick fix, is that we start to focus on our ability. Well, if I read my Bible more, if I pray more, if I do more of this, if I go to church more, if I'll just quit this, this kind of bad thinking, then I'll be better, I'll be better, I'll be better. And we keep looking for that fix. When really what we're doing is we're looking for something that we can only find in the Spirit of God. We're looking for something that has to be given to us as a gift, not something that we can manage and control. Or we leave all that spiritual stuff over here in this church world and out here in our life, School, work, family, whatever it is. We're looking for all the fixes to make that better. And we do that in church too. I I missed the bandwagon of writing books about how to fix all the problems that churches have. Because in my ministry career, there has always been some fix. We need to do it like that group up there. We need to do it like this group over here. I hear that they're very successful. Well, if we'll just do this, well, if we'll have this kind of ministry, if we'll all do this, then we'll just fix everything, and we can make a great church. The funny thing is, all of those different solutions that have been out there for years and years and years haven't always worked. In fact, some of them have made things worse. And even the church can become a false god over the true God. And I'll tell you this, today and as you go on in life and, and maybe this week, and I just want you to be paying attention to this, as, uh, as, uh, as David and I used to say, I say this to help you know how to listen. Chances are you're going to meet somebody that church has become a stumbling block from them. I'm not saying that's the way it should be. I'm not saying that's the way it's supposed to be. 
But they got messed up because they thought that church was God. And may God help us as witnesses to His beauty and His love and His glory. May we be a better example to them, again, so that they see God for who God is and not filter it through poor examples of His church. So, uh, and again, what we need to give them is not the perfect example of a church. We need to give them a reflection of the perfect God. That's what they need to see. The quick fix is a temptation, and in truth, in Christian discipleship, there is no quick fix. Even baptism isn't a quick fix. Baptism, otherwise, we would all get baptized and then just stay out of trouble. You know? If baptism is all you can really need to do or all you really should do as a disciple, then what we ought to do is we need to create like a, a little compound somewhere. Ooh, it's starting to sound like a cult. And we create a little compound somewhere, and then every time one of us gets baptized, we put you in a little room and we never let you out again. We're going to put you in here so that you'll stay clean. You got cleaned up in baptism. We don't want you going out and getting dirty again. Just, just don't get in trouble. Don't get in trouble. We're going to cut you off from the outside world, and then you'll be okay. Again, uh, it's a focus on, on, on the fix. When really baptism is the first step in a life of being saved. Notice what Paul has learned about following God. In 1 Corinthians 1.18, there's an interesting phrase that he uses. He's talking to a pretty messed up church. He's telling them how to trust in God more and to be more Christ-like in the midst of a lot of problems that they have. And so he mentions right at the start the message of the cross. And he says the message of the cross, it's foolishness to those who are headed for destruction. But for we who are being saved, we know it's the very power of God. Now why didn't he say for those of us who are the saved? Well, because Paul didn't want to put, you know, he didn't want to count his chickens before they hatch. Yeah, he didn't want to presume. Why, why not? Isn't he confident in God and God's ability to save? What if being saved is his way of saying that salvation is an ongoing growth process of the Christian life? That you get baptized, it's like a birth. It's a death to the old life, but it's a birth into the new life. And from there we grow. And as Peter will say, we add to our knowledge different things until it fully blossoms into love. I think we ought to see ourselves not as the saved, final point, but the being saved. Because every day that, that, that you experience some victory, when, when God gets a hold of you and you do something better than you would have done without God, or you, you even realize how much you've messed things up and then God shows you grace and you embrace that, guess what? That's another day that you're getting saved. That's another day that you're being saved. And you're living out your baptism salvation all over again. Sometimes people say, you know, I need to get rebaptized. I don't know. I don't think my first baptism took. You know, it didn't stick with me. So I need to get rebaptized. I didn't know what I was doing. Well, of course you didn't know what you were doing. Nobody, nobody really understands everything baptism is all about. Is going to be baptized necessarily. But you can't know it all. You just have to know who Jesus Christ is. And you have to know that the saving power is in Him. You have to know that he is the one that saves us from our sins. But, but here's more my point. 
We're all getting rebaptized every day we recommit to that decision to follow Christ. We're living in our baptism. The way Paul describes it is we're, we're, we're always living it out. And so we, that, that decision that we made to be baptized into Christ, to become a new creation, a new creature, we've got to live it out. We've got to have the momentum. There is no quick fix to this. And here's the thing. We can relapse. We can stumble and we can fall. But the, the question is, is that stumble and fall take us away from our commitment in Christ? Or is it part of the process of staying on the path? The Apostle John had this really well figured out in his letter in 1 John. Where he talks about being in the light as God is in the light. And the blood of Christ continues to cleanse us of our sins. Do you notice the, on, the picture of ongoing salvation that John gives us right there? Here's an old disciple who has seen the people who were closest to Jesus Christ stumble and fall. And yet, they were saved. They were being saved all along the way. As we're getting over our hurts, as we're getting over our habits and our hang-ups... We're going to have to have something that keeps us going. And maybe what we need to do is replace bad habits with better habits. And since this is a long-haul approach, no one sermon is going to suffice. We just have to keep after it. We have to keep encouraging one another. But right now, I just give you these three little habits that might help you. Again, these are not three quick fixes. These are three long-haul habits. Evaluation meditation, and prayer. Let's take a look at each one of those. Evaluation is the process of checking where we're at. And I want you to imagine the dashboard of your car, and you've got all those crazy lights, those little symbols. And, and, and they, they, they get worse, I think, as we move on into the future. Because some of them don't even make sense. I mean, what on earth is this? Uh, you know, you've got a... Is that... Is that a bug, or is that, you know, uh, does that mean that a spring fell out of your car? I mean, what exactly is it? And, and this guy, I mean, right here, I don't know what that's all about. It's like, yep, you done fell off the road, you know, and, uh, you know, that's it. You know, that light just comes on to make you feel better. It's like, sorry, and, uh, you know, you're gone. And all of these weird lights, the only, I remember the old days when our light would come on, and it was big, and it was bold, and it would say, check your engine. You know, and it would tell you what to do. Uh, they were very clear. But you've got all these warning lights, and if you want to get more sophisticated, you can get a code reader, or you can take your car into the shop, and they'll give you these codes, and it will tell you exactly what's wrong. But you have to do what? You have to pay attention to the indicators. And there's at least four indicators that we have as disciples of Jesus. A physical indicator, an emotional indicator, relational, and spiritual. The physical indicator is that stress, that anxiety. It might be our gut. It might be our intuition. And you have to read it. You have to interpret it. You have to know if it's a false light or if it's a real light. And that's that process where we work with one another. But, hey, don't just, don't just tamp it down. I mean, if you've been feeling stress... Maybe that's a physical indicator of a spiritual problem. Maybe that's a physical manifestation of something that's much deeper. And again, no pill, no treatment, 
No quick fix is going to address that. And I'm not saying that you shouldn't get it addressed physically, but I'm saying there might be more. Likewise with the emotional. When I lived in uh, South Texas, we were right next door to the Dow Chemical Plant. Now, if you've never seen this, you might think that the Dow Chemical Plant is like everybody's living in their little houses, and there's a little building over here, and it's like, here's the plant. We make chemicals. No, it's a city all in and of itself, and it covers an area even larger than our city. And they had these huge towers out there where they're refining all these chemicals and petrochemicals and everything. And every once in a while, you would see one of these towers shooting off a huge flame. I mean, it's big. It looks like something out of Lord of the Rings. I mean, just boom, you know, there's the evil temple of Sauron out there. And, uh, you know, you expect to see a giant eye in the flame looking at everyone. And, of course, the company would say, Oh, don't worry about that. <laughs> There's a huge flame shooting out of a tower out there. What do you mean? And vats of chemicals everywhere. They, no, that's a controlled release. Oh, okay. Well, I hope somebody's in control because it's, uh, it's pretty scary looking. And we need to do that with our emotions because our emotions are volatile. You can't deny that. That's what emotions are. It's why it's way God made them. But we've got to control the release of those emotions. So you're not justified if you get angry and you haul off and yell at your family. You're not justified if you go out to eat today and things aren't exactly like you expected. And you decide to dress down the servers and tell everybody, I hate this restaurant, I'm never coming back. What good have you done? They'll learn, they'll learn not to be so slow next time. Um, Maybe you're the problem. And we need to control that release of emotions. And that doesn't mean we're not going to feel. We're going to feel upset. We're going to feel aggravated. We're going to feel frustrated. But there is a way to control the release of those emotions. We have to pay attention to the indicators. And a lot of that emotional buildup might be an indicator of something. In our relationships, our relationship indicators, might, we might read it like this. We might say, is there peace in our relationships? Or is there tension? Do we feel it? Do we recognize it? You know, good relationships are mature enough that sometimes if there's something we can say to one another without fear, we can say, is everything okay? Are we all right? I always appreciate that if somebody says, hey, listen, I noticed you've been kind of looking at me funny. You know, I mean, is everything okay? Are we all right? I'll say, yeah, we're fine. It's just indigestion. Oh, okay, good. I'm glad to know that. And we move on. They're checking the indicator light, and they know what the problem really is. I, I still like one of my father's uh, expressions. He used to say this all the time. You know, you'd ask him, you say, and I, I do it too. It, it fits for me. It's like, hey, are you angry? No, I'm not angry. I'm just ugly. Oh, okay, I get it. So, so sometimes when you think I'm angry, I'm just ugly. All right, and, and don't, don't worry about that. And uh, listen to the preacher. He's putting himself down. Is there a problem? No, there's not. I just like that statement. Spiritual indicators are indicators that we need to ask ourselves, is our spirituality really doing what it's supposed to do? Is it really reflecting and showing up as it's supposed to? Or are we just going through these routines and these motions, thinking that spirituality is something we can manage, sort of like chess pieces on a board? You remember a few years ago, some of you were here, and Patrick Mead came, and he did a lesson for us, and he talked to us about cargo cults. 
And cargo cults think that, you know, if you imitate things a certain way, because these are cults that are set up, uh, you know, these people out in the Pacific Islands who, uh, yeah, you got this whole bunch of people out there who, who uh, uh, they, they've got this little cult of religion based around Prince Philip. Now, that's bad. I mean, you know, but you're based around Prince Philip, and so they dress up like Prince Philip, and they have all these little rituals, and they think that if they move all the pieces around in the right way, then the gods will give them what they want. But we can do the same thing, thinking that if we move things around a certain way, that our spirituality will come out. It's like a vending machine. We need to check our spirituality and make sure that we're not just talking to God, but also listening to God. That we're not just turning God into a fix, but we're truly relying on him to give his answer. Which leads us to the next um, two habits. Meditation. Meditation may sound weird. It may sound all 1960s Greenwich Village Eastern mysticism. That's too bad. Because there is a kind of meditation that is godly. The difference between a lot of New Age meditation is New Age meditation seeks to empty the mind. Which if you want to empty the mind, uh, there's a lot of TV shows you can watch that will definitely empty your mind and lower your IQ while you're at it. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's quite easy actually to empty your mind. But instead, biblically what we're doing is we're filling our mind with better things. We're filling our mind with godly things. There's a lot of psalms like Psalm 77, verse 12. Note this. I will consider all your works. This is the psalmist talking to God. I will meditate on your mighty deeds. This is more than just Bible study. This is more than just memorizing Scripture. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's good to get that into our thinking. But he's also focusing on the things that God has done. He's remembering God's track record. He's looking at what God has done. He's meditating on that. And if God has done this in the past, then why do we doubt that he will not do the same in the future? I've got a typo there. It says negative thinking is not naive. I should say positive thinking is not naive. We often often, uh, default to negative thinking because we think, well, you know, if somebody's a positive thinker, they haven't really lived real life. They're just being a Pollyanna. They're being naive, thinking everything's going to work out. Let me tell you, there's a lot of bad things happening in this world. Okay, so let's all be negative and cynical, and how's that working for us? Being a worrier is not being realistic. Well, you know, I'm going to worry because I've seen enough bad stuff, and it's better just to be realistic about it all. Worrying is negative thinking in action. What if instead, I mean, don't we have a better story? Don't we have a better narrative? Being positive is not automatically being naive. Being worried is not somehow having an edge on other people. I like to think in terms of worst-case scenario. Okay, that's great. Think of worst-case scenario. But what about best-case scenario? What about God-based scenario? Now what would happen there? And if we start to meditate on things, then we begin to see reality and see ourselves and see the world around us the way God does. And it becomes a better habit where we start to see things differently. 
Which takes us to our last habit is prayer. Again, if we focus on the procedural, we're going to assume that prayer has to be done a certain way. I used to think that prayer was like email. That if you didn't sign it off the right way, then the prayer wouldn't make it to heaven. You've got to hit send. And send, you know, not send, but send. Send was, in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so when you say that. So I'd get really upset when I was younger, and I'd fall asleep at night, and I'd said my prayers in bed, and I fell asleep right in the middle of the prayer. Oh, no. You know, and there's God on the other end of the phone, you know, hello, hello. Are you awake, Benjamin? Are you awake? Yeah, but I prayed for this. But you didn't say in Jesus' name, amen. So we don't receive your prayer. (sighs) When Jesus teaches us how to pray, we call it the Lord's Prayer. He's not even giving us a procedure on how to pray. I mean, if he did, all we could do is ever say the Lord's Prayer and just leave it at that. This is the only authorized prayer. We know better than that. In fact, he launches into a parable. But we'll do that parable tonight in the 6 p.m. class. He launches into a parable where he says, you know what, prayer, he says, some of y'all are, are you know, he says, some of y'all are good parents, and some of y'all, as parents, eh, you know, you're not that great, okay? I mean, he, you think I'm being nasty. He says evil parents, okay? And he says, but you're good enough parents to know that if your kid comes up and says, hey, can I have a piece of bread, you're not so stupid that you're going to hand the kid a rock. Here you go. Um, He says, you get that right. Now, if you can get that right, then how much more can God understand what you need and give it to you? Folks, prayer is OJT. You know what that means? On-the-job training. You just have to do it. Just pray. Pray about everything. Well, I don't want to pray about the wrong thing. You know what? You probably will. And you will probably pray about the wrong thing Often. Well, I don't want my prayer to seem, uh, you know, uh, wrong-headed or selfish. Guess what? It probably will. Oh, God listens to some terrible prayers. Don't you know it? I mean, they're just, they're wretched. And I mean, and some of them are mine. And I'm not, I'm, I'm not mincing words on that. I'm not trying to make you feel better. But know this. There is an editor for your prayers that makes your prayer better. It's called the Holy Spirit. Francis Chan talks about this in one of his books. And he talks about praying the wrong kind of prayer. He said he was golfing with some friends, and he was like, you know, I really wanted to impress them, so I prayed, God, give me a really great golf score today. He says, thank God that the Holy Spirit was editing my prayer because the Holy Spirit went before God and said, hey, he's got a really stupid prayer. His prayer is for a good golf score. He really needs humility. He says, I've, and Francis Chan says, I've golfed the worst game of golf in my life. Because the Holy Spirit knew what he really needed to pray. But if you and I will enter into a prayer relationship with God, God will either answer yes, or he will answer no to our prayers, or here's the one I love. In the midst of it, you'll realize, wait a second, I'm asking for the wrong stuff. Ah, we begin to see things his way. You've just got to jump into those prayers. Make it a habit. What relationship do you have with someone who you never speak a word with that person? I mean, even your relationship with your pets, you talk to them, okay? Uh, 
And some of them are better conversationalists than us. But even in that relationship, so wh why do we think that somehow we're going to have a relationship with God if we don't spend time talking and listening to Him? Those are three habits that I just, I just want to encourage you to take them with you. That evaluation, the meditation on God's ways, and the constant prayer. Would you pray with me now? Father, we ask that you would give us the energy and the, and the will and desire for the long haul. Father, we have the desire. We want to be better servants. We want to be better disciples. We want to grow as Christians. And Father, so many things discourage us. Our own limitations, uh, failures, even our fear. And sometimes, Lord, it's our fear of you and it's a misplaced fear. It's not a holy respect. It's, it's not an awe of your power and ability. But, Father, it's a, it's a terror-filled prayer because we don't understand that your perfect love casts out imperfect fear. And so, Father, I pray that you'll help us to, to grow closer to you and that we will encourage one another to grow and that we will come to know you and know your will and have the power and strength to live it out. Father, bless us as your people, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. We're going to stand and sing this song together. If there's any encouragement you need right now, this is a good time to respond. Let's sing.